Welcome to the Australian Abortion Stories podcast. This podcast is where you can listen to and receive the beautiful story medicine of women and people's lived experience of abortion. You will also find interviews and conversations with some really amazing Australian professionals and people working in the field of abortion access, care and advocacy. We share these stories and conversations to help decrease abortion stigma in Australia and worldwide and to help those who've had abortions to better understand their experience. Because roughly one in four Australian women and people with uteruses will have an abortion in their reproductive lifetime. So you are not alone. This podcast is hosted by Kelsey on Ghana Country in South Australia and Cassidy on Gadigal Country in New South Wales. So for whatever reason you are here listening to this podcast, welcome and let's get into today's show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Australian Abortion Stories. I'm Cassidy, your host for today, and in today's episode I'm joined by the wonderful Kari, who is based on Ghana country in South Australia. Kari shares her two procedural abortion stories as well as her research into abortion stigma that she has been doing over the last eight years as well as her work for Children by Choice. I think this is a really necessary conversation. There's a lot of good information in this episode and it was a a privilege and an honour to be able to sit down with Kari and have this chat. Uh, As always, pop the state-by-state organisations where you can seek support and help about abortion in the show notes. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. All right, hello and welcome to this week, fortnight, month, I don't know where we are, episode of Australian Abortion Stories. And this week I am joined by the wonderful, wonderful Kari, who, what is it? It's a Friday morning. Um, You are in South Australia, am I correct? In In Adelaide. Adelaide. Wonderful. Um, Did you want to start off just a little bit about about you and I guess where your story begins, because we're kind of doing a mix today. We're doing a mix of, I guess, um, Kari's work uh, in abortion and then also your PhD and a bit of a story share too. So maybe we'll just go back to the beginning and start with the story and go from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I've had two abortions. Um, the first one was when I was 18 uh, and I was in my first relationship. And gosh, it's so long ago. Um, so I live in Adelaide and I've always lived in Adelaide and um, abortions are really easy to access in Adelaide. Um, we have the Pregnancy Advisory Centre, which is amazing. It's a one-stop shop. You essentially go in for a single day. They do all your tests, all your scans, everything happens. Um, back then there was no medical termination of pregnancy, I think. Um, it certainly wasn't an option that I knew about. I don't think it was around. Um, so it was procedural. Um I can't remember what happened when I got pregnant. Um, I know I had been taking the pill, um, but I don't remember the circumstances around that. Um, My boyfriend at the time was quite a bit older than me. I was 18 and he would have been 23 or 4. 
Um, and I must have told my mum. She was super open about everything. Um, and she was very matter of fact, like, cool, don't make a big deal of it, just make an appointment, go. Like, it is what it is, who cares? Like, it's nothing. Um, and I think I'd grown up, I don't remember when I first, like, heard about abortion, but I think I grew up just thinking about it like that, like it was just a thing you did, it wasn't problematic. Um, I remember going in on the day um, my boyfriend refused to be any part of it because he was um, Christian. Um, and I think mum must have taken me and the day was really smooth as they are. It's really easy, um, which is so like not most people's stories in Australia. Um, and then I remember coming home. He wouldn't visit me that night. I think that was the only upsetting part of the experience um, and didn't come over for a couple of days and sort of we never spoke about it. So it was like a really easy practical experience I think there might have been protesters um, outside of the pregnancy advisory centre back then certainly not a huge swathe um, but some I don't really remember being particularly bothered by it I think it was just in general a very normalised experience I didn't have complications um, yeah now that I'm saying it out loud it's such a wild story um because in my work you know we mainly talk to people who are having trouble accessing abortion or um when I interview people generally they get in touch for interviews if they've got a particularly interesting story to share and I guess my story wasn't particularly interesting um so it contrasts what I hear a lot but I know it is probably a pretty regular experience um for people down here in Adelaide so that was yeah that was my first experience I don't know if you Thank have you any for questions. sharing. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to hear when, uh, particularly your mum's response. You know, it happens. We can yeah. just go and, and and this particular thing is available. It's nice when that's a response, and then there's something also available for you to access. Um, I love hearing that, particularly that it was. I don't know how many years ago, but um, oh, it was like eighteen years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And how long between the abortions were there? So you were 18 at the time of your first abortion. How much later was your second abortion? My second abortion was when I was, I'm going to say, 24 or 25. Um, and I was with my now husband. Um, and we were about to get married in a couple of months, I think. Um, but we actually hadn't been together for very long and for most of our relationship I lived overseas working um, with the United Nations and so we didn't actually know each other that well and we'd never lived together, um, which is wild now that I think about it because <laughs> um, I was always a very practical person like with relationships. But anyway, um, and I remember getting a positive pregnancy test and I drove him to a park, like just a park because we lived with his parents. Um, my husband's from overseas, so whenever his parents are in Australia and they were here to prepare the wedding, um, they always live with us. Um, so I couldn't really talk to him about it at home. So I remember I drove him to a park and I don't I think I wasn't sure how I felt about it. Like I wasn't not happy, but I wasn't over the moon. Um and I took the pregnancy test, you know, it was in the center console, and I was like, I've got something to tell you, and I whipped it out and showed him the test. Um 
And look, I don't remember exactly how that conversation went down, but I think I said to him, like, I just don't know that it's a great time. We haven't ever lived together yet. Our relationships, like we need time to build, even though we're getting married. And I just feel like our first year of marriage would be pregnancy and babies and we just wouldn't be able to establish a solid foundation. Um, and I think he was just like, oh, yeah, fine, no worries, like something like that. Um, I think there was a little bit of shock there for a while with the pregnancy test, but then like there, he has no problems with it. I spoke to him the other day because we really don't ever talk about it. It's not really a, a thing um, because I was talking to him about, you know, potentially talking on on podcast and stuff and he was like yeah I have no problems with it talking about it um I don't think he's really told people about it but he also doesn't seem to have any particular feelings about it the country's he the country he's from abortion is quite normalized um it is an Asian country um but yeah I don't think it's stigmatized at all I've spoken to a lot of people from there and they sort of don't seem to think it's a, a problem socially. Um, it's accessible. So, yeah, we went to the Pregnancy Advisory Centre again. Um, he took me. I remember there was a, it was a little bit trickier emotionally because we I was in this relationship and this is a really common experience, I think, when people are in a situation where they think other people would see them as in the right place to have a child, then they sort of grapple with their reasoning. Um and so I think it was a little bit trickier, uh, but I was, you know, I, I didn't question the decision at all. But I do remember I woke up from the anaesthetic and was crying and I just was like, why am I crying? I have no idea. Um, but it was short-lived and, you know, it's anaesthetic. So, <laughs> um, And he took me home and his mum knew, but his dad still doesn't know. Um, and I think his dad would be fine, but we just, I don't know, for some reason we didn't want to tell his dad. So I went home and we just told them I was unwell um, and I stayed in my room that night. And then, yeah, again, it was all pretty normal and all pretty fine. And, you know, I don't think I spoke about it to a huge amount of people. Now I do very openly. Um, it's this first line in my thesis. <laughs> um, but we didn't talk about it a huge amount. Um at the time but it also wasn't really a problem and yeah another great experience at the pregnancy advisory center um i'm just the biggest advocate for every state having these pregnancy advisory centers because <laughs> um, it's just so great to walk into a service and know everyone is there for the same reason the counselors the gps the people doing the procedures, the nurses or midwives, like there's no chance of receiving any, you know, stigmatising sort of interaction and um, there was no protesters then. So I don't know if I don't, the law certainly hadn't come in then, but I just don't remember there being any issues. Um, yeah, the main issue was that we kept it secret from uh, my partner's father. I remember when we announced that pregnancy to my dad, I was like, Dad, I'm pregnant. And he was like, congratulations. And I was like, no, I'm not keeping it. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Like he was fine with it. But I guess because we were about to get married, people had just assumed to be really happy about the pregnancy. So he was totally fine with it. But um, there was that awkward moment where we had that like congratulations or not um, thing. But apart from that, yeah, also fine. I guess the only um, challenge was... Oh, a few years later, um, first year of my PhD, actually, um, and we were thinking about starting to have children at that point. Um, 
and I got pregnant. I think it wasn't exactly planned, but it was very much wanted. And I had a really difficult miscarriage experience. Um, we had our seven-week scan and it was all good. And then they reckon like the next day the fetus must have, its heartbeat would have stopped. But we didn't find out for like six weeks. And then my body wasn't having, like just wasn't <laughs> in denial, I guess. So it was like quite a long process of two procedures a month apart and some really bad experiences in the hospital around the miscarriages and, and how I was treated. And that was really interesting because I just remember having this thought like, this is karma for your abortions. And then I also at the same time was going, but you don't even believe that abortion is a problem. So why on earth is this narrative in your head? Like it's so odd that someone who's so pro-choice and who's surrounded by people who are totally pro-choice, like why is that even a thing? Like why is that popping into my mind, you know? Um, so, yeah, years later sort of that came up for me. Um, but now we're, we sort of talk about it quite openly with people. Um, you know, the losses and the abortions, because I think it's all part of that, you know, that journey of being someone with a uterus. Um, and the the only other time that I felt a bit funny about it was um, women so often or people with uteruses so often get asked in medical spaces how many pregnancies they've had and not how many children they've had, but how many pregnancies they've had. And so I've had two abortions and two miscarriages and I have one beautiful daughter. So I've had five pregnancies. Um, and so to say that sometimes I, I like anticipate a little bit of awkwardness, but there never has been any. But that's the only time when I feel a little bit weird about things. Um, but, yeah, so both of my experiences were pretty similar, actually. Um, maybe not super juicy stories. <laughs> It definitely doesn't matter. <laughs> it's actually really refreshing to hear when people have experiences like yours, you know, that um, I loved your dad's response. That's perfect. <laughs> it is absolutely wonderful. And that the support was available. And you're exactly right. It's um, if you are a woman or a person with uterus, it is, it's all part of it. Um, yeah. 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 Like and, I, super fertile which I also hate talking about because you know so many people struggle with that so it feels yeah. really weird to be like I just get pregnant like all the time I have massive problems with contraception I get very depressed on the pill um which means I'm terrified to try anything sort of more like injections or anything more permanent because I just don't think the hormones and my body get on very well and then I had a marina after the second termination because I actually yeah that's part of the story like they offered to put it in while I was having the procedural abortion. And I guess this is where, like, shame came in a little bit and I thought I'd better do this. Like, clearly I'm not very good at stopping myself from getting pregnant. Um, so I did have the marina put in, but it was horrible. And after, like, six months I was in emergency, just, like, in so much pain, and I had them take it out. So since then I really haven't taken any sort of modern form of contraception, which is wild because I work in like reproductive health and reproductive health education. Um, and I often think like if, if I'm not taking contraception, like how do I expect other people to? Um, but I've also been married a really long time, which is a great form of contraception. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think... Um, 
that marina was it's interesting because I've interviewed young people who've had the exact same experience um, where they felt like a bit ashamed, especially after like a second or third abortion. And so they've agreed to have like IUDs that they didn't really want or they knew their body wouldn't love um, and have had really bad experiences. And then one person I spoke to just didn't even go and see a doctor because she was in so much pain because she just kind of thought, well, bad luck, you have to have it because you've had two abortions, you know. Um, so I think that's not an uncommon story either. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely not. Um, it's quite common too, and it is routinely offered, you know, if you're having mm. an abortion to have a IUD put in. And I know a lot of people have a lot of different mixed feelings and responses to that, but it's, and that's kind of like internalized sort mm. of stigma and belief of, oh, you know, yeah, I've had an abortion or, two or three or f- however many I should be doing this. Um, and it is just about listening to your body and knowing what's right for you and uh, mm. in some cases trying different things out and <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, learning the hard way. It doesn't work, like ending up in emergency. Um, yeah, like I tried a lot of things. I think I tried different pills for like 13 years or something. 10 years yeah. um, like yep. I was you know I was on that journey for a really long time and at that time there was no research that showed a link between the pill and depression so when I would tell my doctors that it made me really depressed they're like oh it doesn't really do that like that's not a thing um and I just remember thinking it it literally does like two days after I stopped taking it I'm totally well again um you know stuff like that it's interesting I think the older we get the more secure we are in our understanding of our bodies but when you're young and when you're like in a vulnerable position having, you know, any sort of um, reproductive health care, I think generally, like I had some really bad experiences with the miscarriage and also it's just such in a vulnerable position, then all of those narratives, even if you don't believe them, they actually do impact your experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And did you want to talk about how your abortions, did that, did those experiences then influence your the work that you went on to do or were you kind of already in that field before having abortions? I don't think they influenced my work at all. I think it was a complete fluke. Um, <laughs> and, I, and it was really only like three months ago when I was finalising my PhD and writing the introduction and trying to frame it in a sort of personal way because that's always nice to like bring a little bit of interesting narrative into something that's so procedural as like a, a PhD um that I I thought oh what was my experience with stigma because my PhD is on abortion stigma specifically um and then I sort of started thinking about those little experiences like my boyfriend and I in the first one broke up like the connection just never came back and then um you know the IUD experience and and then not who I chose not to tell and what, you know, that sort of stuff I started reflecting on super recently. Um, I got into the space because I was living, when I was 19, I was living um, in the Caribbean and working in a community that wanted a women's health centre. And, you know, I was very white saviour and like, oh, great, I'll do that. Like, I'll come and save you all. <laughs> so I came back and studied um, global health as my master's. Um with the idea of starting this women's health centre, um, which is cute. Um, I was, you know, very young. Um, and so I was really interested in women's health because of that. And then 
increasingly got interested in sexual reproductive health and then went over to um, UNFPA, which is the family planning arm of the UN, and did that work for a year. And it was just after I got back from there that I had the second abortion. Um, but then I was really still just more broadly in like HIV and reproductive health and stumbled upon researching abortion stigma through a literature review. So it was like a very random sort of um, process and it wasn't because I was planning to study abortion at all. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting because I think I often don't tell people about the abortions in my professional space because I don't want them to think that I'm just there because I'm motivated by my personal experiences and, you know, I'm just trying to, like, I don't know, process or I've just always felt a bit weird about people assuming that, so I haven't brought it up a lot. Um, I think that's probably wrong um, of me to assume. But, yeah, they're quite distinct. And I think because my abortion experiences were so normalised and so easy um they weren't sort of deep in me in a way that was motivated me to you know make change it wasn't until I got into my PhD research and later you know the job that I have now that I understood how problematic it was in Australia I remember when I told my mom I was going to be doing abortion stigma for my PhD and she went oh abortion's not stigmatized in Australia right and I was like oh well how many people have told you about their abortions and she was just kind of silent she's like oh yeah not really anyone <laughs> I was like, there you go. Like, that's what I'm researching. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and your PhD. Yeah. Did you want to talk about how many years were you researching <laughs> abortion stigma? I feel like you might be one of the okay. biggest experts we have on it now. <laughs> yeah, seven and a half years. Um, I submitted two days ago and it was like exactly seven and a half years. So it'll be oh eight by the time I graduate. Yep. Congratulations. <laughs> That's huge. It seven is. and a half years researching abortion stigma. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. I love your commitment. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> yeah, look, I am. Um... That was not the plan, but I had, I started the PhD and then I had that really hard miscarriage experience in the first year. So I took a few months off um, because of researching abortion while experiencing that was really challenging. And then I got pregnant soon after that with my daughter and had a high risk pregnancy. So I really couldn't work much through that. And then I had like mum brain fog for like three years. So even though I was technically in the program, I really achieved very little um so it's all really been since 2020 that I've been you know hardcore into it um yeah and then some stuff happened with the PhD um that was really hard emotionally to deal with some reactions I got from community and um really messed with my mental health as well so I took another three months off I think um late in 2020 so yeah it's been a really up and down journey um and I think that happens to a lot of people with the PhDs, no matter what the topic is, but it's yeah. really nice that it's nearly done. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what were those responses that you received when you were sharing yeah. about your PhD? Yeah, so the first, uh, the PhD was two studies. Uh, one was a survey and one was interviews. Um, and the survey we recruited on Facebook and it went viral. Um, and the Chris Australian Christian Lobby got found out about it uh, and sort of distributed it among their mailing list and, you know, through their socials, um, which is what made it go viral. So in the end it was great, 
because I and then all of sort of the women's rights and women's health organizations got wind. Um, and so they all started sharing it too. Clementine Ford shared it, um, you know, MPs. So it went in four days, I got like 66,000 survey responses, um, which was great. But with that came hundreds of emails. Um, and a lot of them were from people who are quite anti-abortion. Um, and interestingly, and there were thousands of comments, obviously, on the social media pages as well. Um, and a lot of it was really attacking the uh, perceived bias in the survey. So the survey was trying to understand what people think about abortion, but what they think other people think about abortion. So there was a lot of statements. Some of them were like stigma statements. So, you know, abortion is the same as murder um, or women who have ab abortions are bad people. But then there was heaps of really positive statements. So we balanced out the positive and negative. So then there were statements like, um, oh, I can't even remember, but there was lots of really positive, empowering statements too. So we balanced the statements, but the people who were opposed to abortion really only saw the negative statements. Um, oh, sorry, they only saw the positive ones. So they were like, this is biased, it's just a super pro-choice survey. Uh, and then the people who were pro-choice only sort of really took notice of the negative statements and they thought it was an anti-abortion survey. So then they started writing in as well, getting really upset. Um, and other little things like I asked sex instead of gender um, and people were really upset about that. So I got like some really long essays about the difference between sex and gender, um, like referenced essays, which was fun. Um, so, yeah, there was sort of both sides, I guess, if you want to. There's not really sides in Australia, but, you know, I got people who were for and against abortion just emailing in, um, questioning the rigour of the survey, which had been developed with an expert panel over many years and tested in four different ways with all different studies. So it was incredibly rigorous um, and my supervisors kept reminding me of that. But having people just constantly undermine, like tell you your work is rubbish, is really hard when you've been working on it for so long. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't the comments that were the sort of classic anti-abortion, um, abortion is murder, this sort of stuff. It, they didn't bother me because, I, you know, I've seen all of that before. It was really the people attacking um, the quality of the work that was, was really hard to see. And um, the Christian lobby also put a freedom of information request into the university um, and I didn't realise universities were considered public institutions so they can access your records. Um, so because I was a student, they didn't get, they asked for the data, which was never going to happen. Um, but they also asked for reasons why I stopped the study um, because I stopped it five days after it went viral because I had 70,000 responses, you know, like I was only meant to get a 1,000. So I didn't need it to go on any longer, but I also couldn't respond to all of these hundreds of emails. So we stopped it. So they asked for evidence of the reason why it was stopped. I think they wanted to claim that they had been successful in preventing this research from being done. Um, so what they did get was some emails between myself and my supervisor, and they published the emails on their website, um, and they, you know, claimed um, bias and all of this stuff. And I think that whole process was really bad on my mental health. It triggered um, generalised anxiety disorder, which I still have. I'm still on medication, um, you know, medication's great, um, but, you know, it's had quite a lot of impacts. Um, and, yeah, it meant I didn't talk about the research for many years, so I didn't 
talked to the media who were you know knocking on the door and I didn't um present about the results and I guess in that way they were successful they silenced me for a little while but um certainly not any longer and now that the results are out um people are asking are you worried about what's going to happen and I'm not I actually don't mind anymore but I think I've been working in the space for a lot longer now and so um at the time there was a lot of like stuff in my head are they going to come to my house are they going to you know we kept our dog inside <laughs> you know I was like what if they steal the dog or like you just your mind goes a bit wild right and I'd been reading a lot about what ha has happened in the U.S. in the past where there's been a bit more abortion related violence against researchers um uh provider abortion providers and things like that so that was all in my head too so there was a lot of like logistical keeping our address safe and um you know my husband's business and making sure like our ASIC records where our businesses were registered weren't in our home address and because we just weren't sure how far it would go and what would happen I guess so there's just this unknown and no one I've spoken to in Australia has had an experience like that before so no one could really tell me what to do or or how to manage it I guess yeah wow oh my yeah. gosh I had no idea that that was <laughs> part of your research that is I want to say so many things that probably aren't okay to say what I say it <laughs> I can't believe that yeah That's unbelievable and I'm glad that it, it got you the responses like you know kind of backfired on them a little bit but mm -hmm. Fuck yeah <laughs> a lot all the uni people were just saying to me I think it was a week that it happened it was such a short amount of time but you know I'd ring my supervisors quite upset and they'd be like it's great like this is a great thing for your research um one of my supervisors actually had said to me before like if you piss off both sides you're you're doing good research um but <laughs> in the moment it didn't help to know that my numbers were huge I mean now I'm stoked I have the biggest study in the world of abortion stigma um so wow. it's epic but um the, there was a lot of personal sacrifice and consequences that have come with that and they're long lasting um and I think I haven't really written about it but the stigmatization of myself as as a abortion stigma researcher is is quite <laughs> I don't know ironic or interesting um yeah yeah absolutely and mm. What were the findings of your PhD? Are you able to share a little bit about that, like what the takeaway sort of was? Or yeah, I really struggled. To, I really struggle with takeaways, but let me try. Okay, so I'll start with the survey. So the survey was, I guess, the whole PhD. What I was really interested in was how much abortion stigma is there in Australia? Because there'd been no research on it to date. And I know you've, um, you've interviewed Sarah um, and she's done an abortion stigma PhD too. So she started after me but finished before me. So hers was, um, so there's now her research as well. But when I started, there was practically none. Um, so I wanted to know how much abortion stigma even is there in Australia? Is it a thing? Um, and what does it look like and who's most impacted? And what's causing it if there is? So that was sort of, it was a very exploratory, I just wanted to build like a really baseline evidence base so that we had stuff to build on. Um, so the survey was designed to get at how much stigma is there. And particularly I was looking at anticipated stigma, which is what you think would happen to you or someone else if they have an abortion or if you have an abortion. And 
this sort of anticipation of stigma or anticipation of discrimination is really impactful because if you worry that people are going to react badly or you're going to lose your job or you're going to get kicked out of home, um, it really impacts your experience. You're less likely to tell people. You're less likely to seek support. um, You're more likely to experience mental distress. um, You know, some people, not a lot in Australia, will try and self-induce because they're so worried about anyone finding out. So this anticipation for me is the really interesting part of stigma. So that's what I measured. Um, I found that among my sample of um, it was 58,000 full clean responses, so um, 90% of them were pro-choice and about 90% also understand um, that the rest of Australia is predominantly pro-choice. So that was great. Like people do know um, or they they think they believe. They don't realise that they were right. But, yeah, most people are right in, in understanding that Australia is really pro-choice. And at the same time, most of the survey participants think that people who have abortions or people who provide abortions are going to experience stigma and harassment which for me is really, really interesting because if you think that most of Australia is pro-choice, why do you think that most most abortion seekers also experience harassment, right? Like that for me was super interesting. Um, and the survey also found that um, young people, pro-choice people, uh, non-religious people um, are most likely to anticipate abortion stigma. And also really interesting because all previous abortion stigma research has found the opposite, that abortion stigma is greater among anti-choice, more religious, uh, more conservative folk. So there was this, like, really interesting findings there, like why are people who are most supportive of abortion also most fearful of, you know, the social consequences? So then I interviewed 20 young people all genders, and some had had abortions and some hadn't had abortions, and they were all around Australia. A lot of them were rural, um, a lot of them were metro, um, to kind of unpack, like, why are we seeing this? Why are young people, why are pro-choice people experiencing so much anticipated stigma? And I guess there was a few things that I think are really interesting. One is that there's this, they described this kind of vacuum in Australia, like a gaping hole where Abortion is not discussed a lot um, in Australian news or Australian media, in Australian popular media. Um, It's not discussed in schools, in sex ed, and it's not even taught beyond usually an ethics class in medical degrees, right? So there's this absolute silence and young people are just experiencing like one was amazing. Um, He described how Someone had presented um, an abortion story on the news and he was one of the only ones that had seen an Australian news story about abortion. It was like they were so clinical and they were so awkward and they, like, didn't personalise it at all and it was just so awkward. And so all these young people are essentially saying, like, adults are so awkward about it that we grow up knowing that it's a really odd, awkward thing. And so there's this, this hole in education, a hole in dialogue, a hole in content, And it's getting filled, Um, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, it's getting filled by, like, international, mainly American social media content. So the young people aren't learning what's happening, what what the reality of abortion is in Australia, what Australians' views are, but they're getting all of the American news, the American social media content, comments, um, they're seeing comments on social media that are really sort of problematic. Um, 
they're in online spaces and chat groups where they're hearing a lot of um, international and anti-abortion perspectives. And even though they're able to go, most young people, all of them, were like, America's so different to Australia, like we're not like that at all. But because they heard the messages so often, um, these sort of stereotypes and and also just were t- learnt, I guess, by being online that abortion is really contested, but that sort of went into their, they internalised that, like it really went into their imaginations and how they understand abortion. So they were rejecting that that was our reality at a conscious level, but subconsciously it's affecting their experiences. So then when they go to have an abortion themselves, like all of that stuff is in their heads, Um, which I think is great from a public health perspective because it's such an easy thing to fix. (laughs) Like if it's a vacuum, that is the problem, you know, this hole in you fix it with education. I mean, from a theoretical perspective it's so easy to fix right like not that easy to fix in real life but um I was excited by that finding because I thought this is something we can actually do something about um you know and even this podcast is you know playing a role in that um the other thing is all of the young people said that it was someone who's older someone who they just defined as conservative someone who's more religious um that is most likely to stigmatize abortion and you know they often thought this was someone in rural communities and people who'd lived in rural communities had had experiences of this. Um, so even though they thought most people were pro-choice, they were like, there's always going to be someone, there's always going to be the uncle or the person who finds out who's going to be really weird about it and you're always just going to get, you know, stigmatised by someone. Like it's just inevitable. So even though people know that it's a really small portion of Australians that are opposed to abortion, they sort of have normalised its stigmatisation. They're like, oh, it's just what happens. Like everyone's going to just have this crazy, you know, a bad experience at some point. Um, And then when they have abortions and they're really nervous to talk about it like I was and over the years they slowly talk about it more, every single person who disclosed their abortion after their abortion experience received only positive reactions, the people that I spoke to. And then they're all like, oh, my God, I've been worried for five years. And now, like, everyone I've told is like, why didn't you tell me I would have supported you? Like, I'm so proud of you. And they were just so surprised at how positive the reactions were. Um, So in a way, abortion was this really normalising process for people um, because it's counteracting all of that international online stuff that they think is the reality. Um, And then they're going, oh, it's not like that at all. So... Yeah, that's sort of some of, I think, the most interesting things. Wow. Yeah, they are very, very important findings, aren't they? And it is true. Even every time that there is a post from an Australian news outlet about abortion, you can guarantee that there is an American pro-life person who is the one making the comments. They, it's the last time that, you know, I was unfortunate enough to be on one of those threads. I traced back every single account that was trying to fight me and they were based in the US. And I thought, wow, isn't this interesting? Is there one person who these particular laws actually impact by being in Australia who is commenting about being opposed to it right now? And there weren't, there were none. And that did scare me a little bit about what young people particularly think about abortion if we aren't talking about it. So, yeah, I think that your findings 
and, and just the way that we speak about abortion in general now going forward are going to play such a big role in how we speak about it, how we think about it, and particularly younger generations, how they, yeah, go through life experiencing abortion and supporting yeah, I mean, people through it. I think, like, my experiences show what it can be like. Like, if you yeah. grow up in a family that has no issues with it and is pretty open about sex and things like that, and then if you have great public free access, like, this is what it can be like. It doesn't have to be in any way a difficult experience. Um, my miscarriages were much worse experiences. I experienced more discrimination from healthcare professionals. You know, I experienced because I was in all these public systems that weren't used to dealing with this sort of reproductive experiences or it was just one thing they dealt with and so they weren't really sensitive to it. Um, I think the findings aren't revolutionary. Like they're not, they're not surprising. Um, but this is the thing with research. Until you have local data to show that it's the case, like no one's going to do anything about it, right? Because the people that matter at the top want to see hard numbers. They want to see evidence. Um, so even if you're doing research that isn't blowing anyone's mind and no one's shocked by the results, um, it's still really important to have. And, you know, I think uh, it's so interesting to me and I think a lot of people um, who have been working in sort of the abortion research space, there's a really amazing group of early career researchers moving through. But there's, you know, the people that have been in this space for ages and they've been researching it for such a long time and advocating for so long. But the social media stuff is is very foreign to a lot of these people. And I think, um, I know, even my husband, who's <laughs> who's a bit older than me, is like, oh, it's not the real world. Like, just ignore it. It's online. Um, I think if you haven't sort of had these experiences, because it is your reality, that is part of life now, you know, it interacts with our day to day. And um, if you don't understand sort of the actual salience of social media in people's realities, it can be hard to sort of also to imagine how you could use those platforms as, as a force for good, right? So I think... Um, I think there's almost a bit of changing of the guard and just um, it'll be really interesting because I'm not very social media savvy either. Um, the young people I interviewed talked about Reddit and um, apps I hadn't even heard of. <laughs> um, and I think um, when they come through, they'll be the ones that can really think about how we can use these platforms as a force for good. Um, and I think I read a really interesting um, thing in someone else's PhD that I was reading when I was writing mine up. I don't know where they were based. It certainly was in Australia. And they were saying about contraceptive stigma that you can normalise contraception use, but there's still, like, there's still issues around it and it's still, um, it's still stigmatised. So norm we need to normalise it as this, like, first point, but then there has to be a step beyond that where it's just built into systems and it's built into education and, like, the practical bits of it have to be implemented. You can't just... The narrative has to come first and the, the the storytelling and all of that stuff, but then that's only the first step. We can't sort of rely on, on people doing that to fix the problem. Like then it has to go up a level to those structures. And I'm sure Sarah would have talked about that like in her podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, absolutely. And did you want to talk a little bit about your work with children by choice and... Sure. what you do with them yeah. um, and for anyone who doesn't know about their amazing work as well yeah 
Children by Choice are amazing. Um, they're based in Queensland, so I was very lucky to get a job with them during COVID when everyone was working from home. Um, so I'm their only staff member that's not up there. Um, and they do sort of three arms. Um, they started 51 years ago um, as sort of a, an activist, grassroots activist organisation uh, that was helping women get to mainly Sydney um, to get abortions, um, you know, helping fund them, helping with the travel and things like that. And then decades later, they started offering pregnancy options counselling as a way to sort of legitimise the, the organisation so that they weren't just seen as this sort of rogue activist organisation. So now pregnancy options counselling is, is the main arm, I suppose, of um, where our funding comes from. And uh, that's it's Queensland-wide, that service. And then we have an education arm, which is um, runs our conference, which is every two years, which is the only abortion-specific conference or reproductive rights-specific conference in Australia. Um, and they also do professional development, so they work with a lot of um, health professionals, social sector professionals to help them understand sort of complexities around reproductive coercion, um, pregnancy options, contraceptive options, sort of all of that stuff so that when they're working at school nurses, when they've got people coming in, they sort of know where to send them or what information to give them. Um, and then uh, we have our advocacy, which is sort of unfunded, um, but we do that on on the side, but as a huge part of our work, I suppose. And, and our CEO is incredible um, at political advocacy um, and has been very influential nationally um, in the last few years. So that's around um, improving. We're really focused on improving public provision, but just access to abortion services generally. Um, but more than abortion, I guess, it's access to reproductive choice and autonomy. So for some communities, this really means that they need the option to continue pregnancies and parent their children, um, where historically that hasn't been, um, where historically, I guess, like why Australia hasn't encouraged certain populations to have children, right, or where there's been child removal or where there continues to be child removal. So it's not just about abortion. It's about whatever someone wants to do with a pregnancy, um, they should be able to do it. Um, and whatever direction that is. So often it's supporting people to continue pregnancies and working out how that can be possible for them. And then for many other people, it's really around, unfortunately, most of the time our counsellors spend um, trying to get people access physically to a service. So in Queensland, every HHS, um, which is like the sort of LGA, I guess the health district, has a different abortion pathway. And some of them have you know, pretty good access um, to like a procedural or a medical termination. And some of them, it's really, really hard to get them access or they might have to travel a really long way. So we spend a lot of time literally ranking services and making warm referrals and trying to navigate pathways, um, which isn't really what we're funded to do, but that's what is needed when it's such so complex. Um, so, yeah, that's children by choice. Um, I'm a researcher with them. So it's great. All of my research is kind of in the same field. We do a lot of research on reproductive coercion and abuse, um, which is behaviours that interfere with someone's reproductive autonomy. So someone trying to force you to get pregnant or not get pregnant or to keep or end a pregnancy. Um, a lot of, you know, it's really tied in with coercive control and manipulation. So we work on that. Um, conscientious objection, 
we're working on um, research with um, the University of Melbourne at the moment on conscientious objection, which we're really passionate about. What else? We have our online map of abortion providers and contraceptive providers in Queensland. So we're evaluating that. Um, one thing that happens a lot with health professionals is they don't want to provide abortion, especially if they're in rural areas, because they're quite worried about what will happen to them if the community will react, if they'll um, protesters will come to their you know, services or if they'll get ostracised professionally. So this prevents a lot of people from getting involved in abortion provision or if they are providing, it prevents them from letting people know they're providing, like advertising their services, which means the pathways are really hidden, right, um, which means that people end up going to multiple health professionals to try and find one that will give them access. Um, so with the map, what we're trying to do, first of all, is just list all the providers online it's an opt-in thing, so providers have to register, so we won't just list someone's services without their approval. Um, but also when we've evaluated that, we've found that apart from what they call God letters, <laughs> um, none of the services have had any negative experiences. Um, there's been really positive community reactions. Heaps of them have got lots of support um, online and in their communities. So just trying to share that research too to let providers know that you're scared um, that something might happen, but it's really, really uncommon that it will. So don't be scared. Go ahead, provide abortion. Um, advertise your abortion services because you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. funny though. <laughs> <laughs> they are an absolutely wonderful organisation. I knew about Children by Choice long before either of my abortions, long before I even knew what the, like in New South Wales, where to go to get information. I was like, oh, yeah, there's Children by Choice in Queensland. Um, and I know, I don't know if they're still offering it, but they were doing, if you had studied to become a doula to the Australian Doula College, you could then go on to do an abortion doula course through Children by Choice. And I just think that was the most, it's such a necessary part of being a doula because even though you're working with someone who's going through pregnancy, birth and postpartum, I can guarantee that a lot of people you end up working with have had abortions previously before the pregnancy that then you've met them in. Um, mm. So I found that incredibly value, valuable and I love, I really, really love all their work. I think a joke to Kelsey all the time. <laughs> she was like, where do you want to go with the podcast? I was like, I don't know. I just want to work with children by choice in some capacity one day. <laughs> I was like, Oh, yes, please. <laughs> oh, look, I felt like that too. I remember going to my careers counsellor. Um, well, I've been there for almost three years now, so it must have been about four years ago. Um, I just thought I'm just going to try it at uni, like see what they say, because I just I wasn't working at the time. I was studying and raising my daughter, um, and I, there were just no jobs that I wanted. Like I'm just very narrow-minded about when I would research. And I went to this careers council and she was like, so are there some organisations, like what are the sorts of organisations you would work with? And I said, well, there's Mari Stopes um, and there's Children by Choice in Queensland at their own new Queensland service. And she was like, yeah, well, it's not realistic to think you're going to work for one of those if you're not going to move into state. So, you know, what other options are there? And I was like, oh, there's no others. Like they're the two organisations that I want to work with. And she just went, you need to, you know, think more broadly and um, that's not a possibility for you, like, and then a few months later, Children by Choice advertised their first ever research role on Twitter. And it was December 2020, so like, or November 2020, you know, peak COVID. Um, and I rung them. and I was actually in Queensland on holiday. 
And I said, hi, like I saw your job. I, I don't suppose you'd consider recruiting someone from interstate. And they said, oh, look, put your application in. We're not sure if we would. Um, and, I, yeah, I got the job and it was just like literally a dream come true. Um, and I didn't think it would happen for me either. And there wasn't a research position there, you know, like it it, it came to be. Um, so I, I do feel very, very privileged to work for them. And increasingly the work they're doing is national, especially with the advocacy and the education being online and things like that, um, which is really exciting as well because there's no other organisation in Australia that does is that is similar. Um in terms of the scope of the different things that it does. And, um, yeah, I just think it's pretty amazing. Like we have, I might, I might get this wrong, between like eight and ten full-time staff. I'm going to say eight full-time positions equivalent, so we're really tiny. I think people don't realise that about Children by Choice. Um, it's a very, very small organisation, but um, it's so, yeah, we we, we, we do a lot. We, we get a lot done and um, we're really 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 passionate and um we have students come through so if you're a student in queensland you know doing post-grad um public health or, or something similar you can always hit us up for placements we love collaborating with other organizations in queensland and in other states on research or other things so um we love to collaborate and that's how we get stuff done too because we obviously don't have the manpower to do it all ourselves <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah, the work you do is incredibly valuable and definitely worth checking out. Anyone listening that hasn't heard of Children by Choice, just go on the website and it'll be mind blown. Your social media is amazing. The information that you get across is incredible. I love it. I'm a very big Aww. advocate for all of their work. Um, did you want to share anything else before we wrap up? I think everyone I'm, will be I'm... sick of my voice by now. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> like I've learned so much in this conversation um thank you so much for coming on I really really appreciate it um yeah I didn't know that we were going to be talking about so many different things but definitely worthwhile and worth the wait I think we've tried to line this up like five different times <laughs> and then so I was what? like Kelsey are you interviewing Kyrie and she was like maybe you could do it and I was like okay I can't do it this time can you do it this time so we <laughs> bounced back and forward and now we're here and I'm very happy that we, we that got there. Finally got, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege. It's such an amazing project. Um, and, you know, I know everyone that I speak to at CBIC and, you know, everywhere is just so grateful um, and so behind what, you do, what you're doing. So thank you thank um, so you. much. Yeah. That means a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of Australian Abortion Stories. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but we also acknowledge that these are very vulnerable stories and sometimes you may not feel great after listening to these. So if it's brought anything up for you, you're feeling triggered, you're not feeling great, please go and take care of yourself, whether that's going for a walk, calling or texting a friend or booking in an appointment with your counsellor or GP um, or even giving Lifeline um, a call on their crisis support hotline, which is 13 11 14. Whatever you need to do, there is no shame in reaching out for the support you need. If you're currently looking to have an abortion or chat about your options, there's also links in the show notes that Cassidy has kindly put together, um, listing state-by-state organisations that can help. Um, Or you can also contact your local GP to talk about your options because they'll have information and some of them do provide medical abortions as well now, which is great. Um, And if you liked this episode or you found it helpful, 
please help support the podcast reach more people by sharing it with a friend or to your socials if you're comfortable. You can like our Instagram page and our posts. Give our posts a sneaky save because that helps too. Um, You could leave us a review on your podcast app as um, a way to say thank you. And if you'd like to help support the podcast financially, you can contribute some money to our Buy Me A Coffee account, which helps us pay for our Zoom subscription and um, give us funds for a future website. So links to all of the things that I just talked about are in the show notes and via the link on our Instagram page. And that is about it from me. So have a beautiful day and really take care of yourselves and take care of each other.